Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. I'm going to be reading this morning from Hebrews, no, from Romans. I changed my mind. No, actually, it is from Romans. <laughs> I was wrong the first time. So I'm reading from Romans verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 23. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. May the Lord add blessing to his word. Good morning. We've been going through almost for two years now the book of Genesis. Um, I look back, Stephanie maybe can tell me, it's going back to 2020 that Josh started in, in Genesis and we're on to Genesis 43. So there's at least seven more chapters, which seven more weeks, another two months of Genesis. Um, in that time, Leighton has also gone through First Peter. Typically in this church when we preach, uh, we're preaching through a book of the Bible from start to finish, and that's because we believe in the whole counsel of the Word of God. We believe that God's Word is um, edifying in all that it has to say, and sometimes that's the hard stuff. Sometimes it's the stuff we like to skip over. I get to pick. I got to pick this passage this morning, and I know what you're thinking. You picked the passage on wrath, right? That's, uh, but I, I got to pick this passage based on my comfort and also based on um, what I felt God speaking to me. So we're going to uh, spend some time in Romans 1 this morning. Let's open with prayer here. God, as Ingrid said, I pray that you would add understanding to your word this morning. I pray that we would know you, uh, know you as, as creator, know you as redeemer. I pray that our hearts would be tempered and conditioned by your truth this morning. Speak in spite of myself. Speak contrary to whatever parts of my will. Uh, amen. So, um, in this church, we, we pride ourselves. We, are, we, we have as a doctrinal distinctive that we are gospel-centered. We like to make the gospel um, central. 
primary. Um, the gospel is the good news. Uh, that's literally what it means. Gospel just means good news. It's the good, good news of God's work revealed to us through Scripture and, and through history. Um, however, I'm afraid talking so much about the gospel from the pulpit from in our small groups that it sometimes leads to it being rote or, or routine. It loses, it loses some of its uh, um, impact. We may find ourselves forgetting why the good news is so good if we aren't careful. Paul, this morning's passage, tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it's essential as a church that we catch that. The gospel is not only good news, it's, it's empowering. Before I tackle that part, I want to actually jump ahead to the second part of Romans 1. Um, so I'm going to start with verses 18 to 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Paul has this uh, as his introduction in, for his longest letter. The book of Romans is a letter to the church of Rome. And scholars, biblical scholars, generally agree that this is the closest thing. That the, the letter, the epistle to the Romans, is the closest thing we have to um, a systematic theology of Paul, to a, to a logical kind of argument that he builds around the entirety of his beliefs. It's not, it doesn't contain everything. It lacks um, Christology, the idea of, of uh, where Christ falls in this, but he, he develops themes of sin, justification, righteousness in the book of Romans, and this is where he starts. He chooses to start the book with this assertion. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That is a, a rather significant or strong statement especially when he has just finished telling us in verse 16 that the good news is the power of God unto salvation. I don't think there's any way around it. For, for Paul, the wrath of God, the, the just anger of God against wickedness, it's the beginning of the good news. He starts describing the gospel, describing the wrath of God. So we're going to talk about the wrath of God a little bit this morning, but before we get there, I want to, I want to start with a forward of sorts, perhaps two forwards, I should say. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 19, and Scripture tells us here that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown them. Really, Paul is starting his, his logical argument by saying that God has revealed himself to us. Theologians call this the revelation of God. Not to be confused with the book of Revelation, which is just revealing, but the revelation of God. God has given us revelation of himself. He has spoken to us in a way we can understand him. And, and that is where we must start any of our systems or, or programs about thinking about God. All of our logical arguments about who God is and who we are in light of that starts with this fact. God has revealed himself to us. He has spoken to us. And it's helpful to understand uh, that God has revealed himself to us in, in a few different ways. He has revealed himself to us 
in this more general way, the creation, as Paul tells us here. And then he's also revealed himself in a special way in, in Scripture. Uh, for clarity's sake, theologians call these two different types of revelation, general revelation and special revelation, special of Scripture and general of creation. So general revelation, Paul starts there. What can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown us. Creation, the cosmos, everything we see, touch, feel, hear, all of our senses should lead us to the knowledge of a creator. Creation is, is beautiful. It's, it's intricate. It's, it's in a delicate balance. Do you know that when water freezes, it expands by 9%. Pretty much all other matter, apart from a few rare types of metals, all other matter, when it solidifies, when it, when it reaches a temperature where it goes into a solid state, it contracts. It shrinks. But water expands. And as such, its ice is less dense than water. If, if this didn't happen, if ice didn't expand, it would be more compact, it would be more dense, and the ice cubes in your drink would sink to the bottom. Um, and more than that, the ice forming on ponds and lakes would sink to the bottom, and then the top layer would become ice, and that would sink to the bottom, and another layer would, and our lakes and seas and oceans would freeze solid in the winter. And scientists unanimously agree that, that life as we know it wouldn't exist. Aquatic life would be dead. This would have resulted in the extinction of all life. But God, in his delicate creation, made ice more dense, less dense, less dense than water. Nature is filled with these little fine-tuned details. And those who study nature have, have two choices. Acknowledge God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, um, or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There is this often perceived idea that scientists and theologians are in a constant struggle, battling to explain causes and effects. But that is not what Scripture tells us. Rather, scientists who have not suppressed the truth by their own unwillingness to accept the truth of general revelation can and should see Yahweh God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the physical universe they study so closely. Scientists are general theologians, studying God's truth as revealed in nature. All truth is God's truth. And all truth, properly understood, should lead us and cause us to worship to our Creator. Verse 19 says, what can be known about God. This is not saying everything that can be known about God. It's not an exhaustive revelation. There are limits to general revelation. Scripture or special revelation gives us more information about who God is and what he has done in history past and is going to do in the present and will do in the future to come. No, but what can be known about God, that where Paul is saying that, it is simply saying it is possible to know these things about God and anyone who denies knowledge is without excuse because general revelation is enough. 
John Calvin argues in his Institutes of Christian Religion that there are two steps or levels to our knowledge of God. The knowledge of God, the Creator, and the knowledge of God, the Redeemer in Christ. Uh, God's general revelation of himself gives us that first step, the knowledge of God as Creator, whereas God's special revelation of himself gives us knowledge of God as Redeemer in Christ. Something else uh, that is significant about this argument of Paul's is, is that we often talk about the infallibility or the inerrancy of Scripture, of God's special revelation. That's the Bible. But there, there have been months-long conferences and confessional statements to discuss what that means, inerrancy, infallibility. It's easy for us as believers to agree that God's Word is true in all it asserts. Uh, however, less is made of God's general revelation of himself. All that God reveals in creation is true as well. All truth is God's truth. God has the corner on the market of truth. It finds its footing in him. He is the foundation of it. Again, this is why that science versus religion narrative doesn't hold up. Because to those scientists who do not suppress the truth through ungodliness and unrighteousness, they have no choice but to see truth truly in nature. And it will make them marvel at the Creator who stands behind it all. Um, Returning now to the idea of the wrath of God being revealed This aspect of God's revealed character leaves many of us unsettled. Our modern minds don't like this idea. We often sing in this church, in Christ alone. And it has the line, and on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Um, It sings of penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that Christ paid the penalty and faced the Father's wrath on our behalf. And these lyrics, that doctrine, bothers many people. I want to make a, a quick comment as a, as a forward again. The, the, the God of the Bible is often caricatured as a capricious, fickle, quick-tempered deity. One who is set off by the slightest malfeasance. However, those who depict God this way have no grounding for it in the Bible. They have no understanding of the true God. In fact, the Bible says over and over again, we read it just last week, that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God is is far slower than we are, and, and far slower than we would have him be if we were his boss, uh, if we could tell him what to do, we would have him get angry quicker. He is not capricious or fickle in his anger. When the Bible tells us that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and against unrighteous men, our response will never be, yeesh, God, kind of harsh. It will never be that. Rather, our response will be, 
as they did on what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, where they lay down the palms and they said, Hosanna, which means save us. Hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh. Our response right now is, come, Lord Jesus, come. How long, O Lord, until you make things right? How long will the wicked prosper? Will injustice be done? How long, O Lord, until you come and make things right? God is far slower to anger than we are or than we would have him be. Jonah um, was a prophet. He, he was told by God to go to Nineveh. This was a, an enemy nation. It gives us a perfect example of God's slowness to anger and our misunderstanding of it. He was reluctant, Jonah. He didn't want to go because he didn't want his enemies, these horrible peoples who marauded and pillaged and murdered his kinsmen and family. He didn't want them to know about the grace of God. Jonah 4, 3, 4 1 to 3 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This is after God has shown grace to the Ninevites, after God has withdrawn his wrath and his anger from the Ninevite people because they repented. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he, Jonah, was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is unrighteously upset at God for his slowness to anger. And that is one of the main points of that book of Jonah, is that we have no right to be upset at God's wrath, his just wrath. And in fact, we are far more likely to be upset at God for his slowness to anger. This, this ties right into the theme that we've been touching on over and over again as, as Josh has been preaching through Genesis and talking about Jacob and his sons, Judah and Joseph and, and, and the like, that God is severe in his mercies and gentle in his discipline. Can you for a moment just imagine how you would dispose of those who anger you if you had the power at your fingertips to do so. I have children, so I get to experience God-like authority in their lives, and I can testify that when I blow my fuse, I do all sorts, I say all sorts of outlandish things, like cancel Christmas and birthday parties. Not just the party, but the, the holiday itself. I say, you're not turning another year older. It's, uh, but... It's ridiculous. It's, it's something I need to repent of. It's, it's stupid. Anger shrouds my reasonableness. Anger makes me do unreasonable things, but not God. He is not unreasonable or, or flighty or irrational in his anger. Furthermore, when, when he does at last get angry, God's anger is, as Psalm 30 says, but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. 
For his people, God's angry is fleeting. For his people, God's anger is momentary. It is gentle in his discipline. God's anger is dispensed out of the abounding love, that said love that Josh talked about. However we pitch it, God is far gentler than we are or have ever been in our dispensation of our anger. And yet, the caricature that our culture depicts is this grotesque view of God as a quick to anger, hungry for blood deity. They don't know the God of the Bible. That God is slow to anger, abounding, overflowing with steadfast love and faithfulness. And yet, with that forward in mind, with the knowledge that he is slow to anger, we we must still acknowledge that he does, at last, get angry at injustice. He does reveal wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. I will argue, however, that this is good and necessary for God to be good. Ungodliness and unrighteousness cause suffering. Sin is vandalism of God's shalom, as Cornelius Plantinga says. It is us destroying and decreating God's perfect creation. Things are not the way they ought to be, and a a benevolent, a good, all-powerful deity would surely put things to rights, wouldn't he? That is what God's wrath ultimately is, is a manifestation of his putting things to rights, an act of opposition to all that vandalizes his shalom, his good creation. Some theologians uh, argue that God revealing his wrath is merely a giving over of man to his base desires, the natural consequences, giving man over to the natural consequences of sin, the the logical outworking of our choices. It's as if God is saying, "You've, you've done this. You've created this dumpster fire. Now live in it. I'm giving you over. And there's some grounds for that merely giving over being God's wrath argument. Um, the, the phrase, God gave them over, is used three times explicitly in the rest of Romans 1. If we, if we were to read Romans 1.24, it says God gave them over. Romans 1.26, God gave them up. Romans 28, God gave them over and up. We see this concept of God's giving them over, giving us over, formed further in the nation of Israel, in the history of and the, and the catalog of the nation of Israel, specifically in the prophets and the writings, the nation of Israel uh, continues to fail to uphold the covenant that God made with them. They fail to worship Yahweh as God alone and insist on worshiping gods of foreign nations and transgressing the law of Yahweh. In one particular instance, King Zedekiah, king of Judah, forms a treaty with King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And then he goes on to break that alliance, thinking that he could align himself with Moab and Aram, I think, I forget. And, and ultimately, God 
gives them over to Babylon for exile. The nation of Israel is said by the prophets to drink the cup of God's wrath in Isaiah 51, 17. I'm not entirely sure that's all that's contained in the idea of God's wrath is that mere giving us over to natural consequences as if it's a, a holy passive act on God's part, a turning away, a withdrawing of his common grace. Um, however, I think it's fair to say it's certainly not less than that. It's at least God's withdrawing a common grace. Reflecting on this, God tells Israel through the prophet Isaiah, for a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. It is at least God's withdrawing, which is wrathful enough to not exist in a state of common grace with our Maker. Moving on to the second part of verse 20 to 23, Paul says, So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There, without excuse, God's wrath does not come on peoples unaware. It doesn't come unexpected or undeserving. God's justice is just. God's righteousness is righteous. God, who is so slow to anger, so severe in his mercies, and so gentle in his discipline, in his discipline of his people, and then patiently long-suffering with those who are not his people, not wishing any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not capricious. He is measured and slow by our estimation. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, general revelation I say again, it demands acknowledgement of God. It's unavoidable. Verse 22 is, is my new favorite verse to memorize along the one in John where it says simply, Jesus wept. This one's short, simple. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Simple, concise. If anyone looks at creation and tells you that it does not require a creator, Remember this verse. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23 says they exchanged the glory. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They, ex they exchanged true treasure for, for trash, true joy for misery. They failed to understand that creation is meant 
to beckon to mind the glory of the great God who created it, rather than the glory contained in the images themselves. It's akin to looking at a snapshot, a Polaroid image of a, of a tree, and thinking how glorious it is, and then only to remove that Polaroid and see behind it a beautiful mountain scene that sits with the tree. It is, it is the images that we've exchanged to make much of, to glorify. Miss out on the greatness of the God who is behind it all. Coming full circle, back to verses 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul saying that he is not ashamed, it's a, it's a literary device. I had learned this, I didn't know this. It's a laetites. Any English teachers in this, um, uh, it's like a, like a, a figure of speech. And, uh, it is actually asserting his complete confidence. And we, we use similar turns of phrase in our own speech. We say things like, you won't be sorry, to mean you literally won't be sorry. Um, how'd it go, we say? We, well, not the best, which, which means it went pretty bad. Instead of stating something directly, we state the contrary statement as false in order to emphasize something. So Paul's saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He is actually saying that he has complete and utter confidence in this gospel. Um, I said earlier, the gospel is merely news. Merely means good news. This news is, Paul says, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. He goes on to say, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We just spent the last half hour or so, 20 minutes, talking about God revealing his wrath and the natural consequences, the logical outworking of our sinfulness, which we argued was, was part of the gospel, the prelude to the gospel a necessary condition for a proper understanding of the goodness of the good news. In fact, it's also important to what Paul means by the phrase, the righteousness of God. This phrase, the righteousness of God, is, is a subject of, of great debate or discussion, I should say, in church history. It uh, was centered around the Reformation. It uh, has recently come under... Uh, new scrutiny and understanding, but scholars have have come up with ways of understanding it that have tried to capture what Paul is meaning and also be faithful to to what the nation of Israel would have understood. This is they would have said the righteousness of God, and it would have been speaking to a Hebrew audience, and they would have understood it this way. So, what exactly is meant? By this, Paul uses it eight times in the book of Romans and then one time outside of Romans. The ex- Doug Moo summarizes it by saying it can be understood in at least three um, overlapping ways. The righteousness of God could refer to an attribute of God. 
to, to God's justice or faithfulness. So something that is actually an attribute that's attributed to God, God's righteousness. It could be also referring to a status given by God. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, sorry, five twenty one. Um, For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It is a status given to us. Martin Luther came to understand the righteousness of God in this way as not the righteousness by which He is righteous in Himself, or we are righteous in ourselves, but the righteousness by which we are made righteous by God. That's that alien righteousness, the righteousness that is not our own. It became a battle cry for the Reformation. So it could be an attribute, it could be a status. Um, it could also refer to an activity of God, namely his saving acts in history. No matter which way you understand it, it must be seen as a relational concept bringing together aspects of activity and status. The righteousness of God is the act by which God brings people into right relationship with himself. Up until recently, I assume God's wrath was something almost contrary to his righteousness or, or his goodness, like the yin to its yang, um, however, the, the way Paul structures his argument in Romans here, it forbids us from jumping to that conclusion. The fact that he launches right from an assertion that God's righteousness is being revealed in verse 17, right into the assertion that God's wrath is being revealed in verse 18, must cause us as readers to consider the connection between righteousness and wrath. Another connection we have to see is the, is the connection between God's righteousness and faith. Uh, verse 17 continues that from faith for faith, and then it quotes minor prophet Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, it's immediately contrasted, verse 17 going to verse 18 in Romans here, with those who lack faith, those who by ungodliness and unrighteousness suppress the truth. Particularly this, this phrase, from faith, uh, for faith, or some translations say from faith to faith. It's, it's likely another rhetorical device, a literary device, that's meant to emphasize the essential nature of faith. Like in our current law courts, when it gets you to stand up and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, it's, an, it's a repetitive nature meant to emphasize faith and nothing but faith. No amount of merit of your own will contribute to it. It is all God's righteousness. None of it is your own. And I said earlier that this message, the gospel, God's righteousness, the, is empowering. Paul here says it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. As an aside, he says to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, and that's a part of a larger argument in the book of Romans, which I'm not going to open up, but it doesn't mean that, that God shows favoritism. In fact, it's specific, specifically said he does not. It's kind of redemptive historical 
first to the Jew because it was to the Jewish persons that he revealed himself, then to the Gentile. And there's a history with the Roman church being split in half, and there was disunity between the two. So this is Paul's attempt to unify um, and humble the Gentiles within the Roman church. But that aside, Paul says the power of God, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. How is it empowering? How does this mere news give us any power? Uh, certainly power for salvation. How does this mere news give us any impetus, any, any motive force, any compulsion? There's a, a scene in Exodus. Moses just led uh, the Hebrews out of slavery um, into, into the wilderness. They've witnessed majestic powers of God. They followed him in a pillar of cloud by day and a cloud of fire by night. They're camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And this is where Moses, God has Moses go up and down the mountain a whole bunch of times. Would have been an old man. He would have been an octogenarian. And Moses goes up and down. Every time he goes up, he comes back with some new... Um, Revelation, new, new teaching from, from God. And to the people of Israel, each time Moses ascended that mountain, they saw Moses going into a cloud of fire. Exodus 24, 17 there. The people of Israel, they were afraid understandably so, I guess. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. They were more than happy to let Moses wander up into the consuming flames, risk his bacon, and not even wanting to listen to the thunderous voice of God themselves. Moses tells the people, he assures them, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. He tells the people of Israel to, on one hand, not be afraid, and then, on the other hand, to have the fear of God remain with them. These are, are not contradictions. They are distinctions. Spurgeon emphasizes the fear of the Lord that we are commanded to hold on to, to pursue as the fountainhead of wisdom. Proverbs say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord properly understood, the right fear of the Lord, does not cause us to recoil back, but it causes us to lean toward God. Sure, we may tremble and fall to our knees, but we fall leaning towards Yahweh. A Puritan named Thomas Manton argues that 
it was the very short-sightedness of Israel in this scene that plagued Israel, that insisted that Moses do all the risky stuff, like talk to God and and ascend the mountain into the consuming fire. It is that very short-sightedness that Satan loves to inflict on our understanding of God. He says, Satan labors to represent God by halves, only as a consuming fire, only as clothed with justice and vengeance, and then not represent God in his fullness. That is only the half of it. Moses knew Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He knew the full, full full-orbed revelation of who God was. And instead of the fear of the Lord causing him to hide his face to recoil back, he leaned forward and ascended the mountain into the cloud of fire. Would we uh, be a people like Moses, who with great trepidation, almost certainly, understood with no disillusionment the, the weight of the glory of God, the heat of the consuming fire, the dross that will be purged as we pass through it, and yet continue to fall, leaning toward the Lord? God's wrath is his holiness on display for a sinful world, a world that we are a part of. And yet the cup of wrath that was reserved for us while we actively tried to suppress God's truth, the truth of God's goodness, of God's eternal power and divine nature, that cup is not given us to drink. Jesus says in Matthew 20, after one of his disciples asked for a place of honor, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Almost certainly referring to this image that's well formed in the Old Testament, this cup of wrath. Rather, Christ, in God's glorious plan, set Forth before the foundation of the world, drank this cup of wrath, deserved, reserved for you and I, as a direct result of our sinfulness, our vandalism to God's good creation, our cosmic treason. That's the power. The power at work in the gospel power at work in simply good news, the power to, in our right fearing of the Lord, leaning towards him rather than recoiling and running, rather than hiding ourselves as Adam and Eve, our parents did in the garden, to trust and know that we have a strong and perfect plea on our behalf, that our lives are hid with Christ on high, to know the fullness of the revelation of who God is, not not God in half-truths as Satan would have us believe, that we can boldly approach God's throne, trusting the work 
that has been completed as good news told to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our hearts, our minds, the very seat of our intellect and our emotions would be upset and ravaged by the gospel this morning. Help us to know you in your fullness. Help us to know not you merely as God creator, but as God the redeemer in Christ. Help us to understand the severity of your mercies and the gentleness of your discipline. Make us a people transformed by that truth this morning. I pray that we would continue in our worship through the week, further uh, meditating on what it is, what the good news is, as revealed in Scripture. Amen.